Hi there, and welcome to this pre-Christmas edition of MEMcast. It's episode six. I'm Harry Rattan. I'm a consultant urologist at Nottingham University Hospitals. And in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about kidney stones, or more specifically, some common myths about kidney stones. So I'm going to give you five common misconceptions regarding kidney stones, and I'm going to explain why they're wrong and what the real story is. Misconception number one, kidney stones are always painful. This is, in fact, complete nonsense. We do know, of course, that stones can cause a lot of pain. This typically happens when a kidney stone drops out of the kidney and works its way down the ureter between the kidney and the bladder. This gives rise to the extremely painful condition known as renal colic, which is one of the commonest surgical emergencies that we see. So there is no doubt that ureteric stones can cause quite extreme pain and frequently do. The trickier situation comes when we see a patient who has been found to have a little calocele stone, that is a non-obstructing stone sat in one of the renal calices. These patients, if they present with abdominal pain, are often assumed to be suffering from some pain as a result of the stone and are sent over to urology. However, it's hard to understand why a little non-obstructing calocele stone would be painful, particularly if there's no associated infection or inflammation with the stone. We know, in fact, that very many stones are completely asymptomatic because we quite often nowadays discover stones on ultrasound scans and CT scans. And if you ask a patient carefully, they'll often report that they've never had any symptoms of pain relating to the stone. This throws up a whole new challenge because we're never quite sure what to do about these small asymptomatic calocele stones. But current consensus opinion is that, particularly if the patient's young and the stone is at least three or four millimetres in size, it ought to be followed up for a period to make sure it isn't enlarging. There is no doubt also that stones can cause symptoms other than pain even when they're sat in the kidney. So for example, many stones present with recurrent UTIs, particularly in populations who don't normally get recurrent UTIs such as young men. Stones can also cause hematuria, typically non-visible hematuria, which is picked up on urine dipstick, but sometimes stones can cause visible hematuria. So to summarize, stones certainly can be painful, particularly if they are causing some degree of obstruction. However, it's quite possible to have a stone for very many years without having any pain at all. Misconception number two, kidney stones almost always show up on plain x-rays. Now this you would be forgiven for believing to be true as it's often stated in older textbooks that most kidney stones show up on an x-ray whereas most gallstones don't. However, in the modern era, this is not true. Although the majority of stones, probably between 70 to 80%, still do show up. To understand why this is, we need to consider the different types of kidney stones that there are. So the five common ones that we see are calcium oxalate stones, calcium phosphate, uh, triple phosphate stones, which are also called struvite or infection stones, but more correctly, calcium, magnesium, ammonium, phosphate, hence the triple phosphate. And the other two types of stones are uric acid stones and cysteine stones. Uric acid stones, however, don't show up on x-rays 
they are completely radiolucent. Uric acid stones used to be far less common 20 years ago, but they're becoming more common as they are associated with diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, and generally with the poor Western diet that most people have. Now, the thing about uric acid is that it's far less soluble in acidic urine. And if you're diabetic or obese or have metabolic syndrome, your urine is often very acidic. Same is true if you have a diet rich in protein, particularly animal protein and fat. And if your urinary pH drops below six, so say 5.5 or five, then uric acid becomes very insoluble and precipitates out. So it's no wonder really with the massive increase in diabetes and obesity in general that we're seeing more and more uric acid stones. Misconception three, there is always an identifiable abnormality giving rise to stone formation. In clinical practice, the vast majority of stone patients don't have a clear-cut cause for their stone formation, even after quite extensive anatomic and metabolic evaluation. These patients are what we term sporadic stone formers. What gives rise to stones in these patients? Well, it's probably a combination of genetic susceptibility, which we don't fully understand, coupled with environmental factors, including not drinking enough, having a poor diet, perhaps working in a hot environment. All these things can precipitate stone formation if you have an underlying tendency. There are, however, some important underlying causes of stone disease which need to be looked into, particularly if a patient keeps presenting with a recurrent stone disease. These include metabolic disorders, and probably the most common of these is hypercalcemia. Now, we won't go through all the causes of hypercalcemia, but I probably diagnose at least one or two patients a year with primary hyperparathyroidism. Patients with gout may form uric acid stones, as you'd expect, but remember, you don't have to have gout to form uric acid stones, i.e. you can have normal blood levels of uric acid but have elevated urinary levels. Then there are some rarer metabolic conditions. So, for example, you might have heard of cystinuria, there are various forms of the disease, but the most common type is an autosomal recessive um, inheritance pattern, and this gives rise to cysteine stones. You might have also heard of primary hyperoxaluria, which is a really rare condition and can often lead to very rapid onset of stone disease and renal failure. Some patients with renal tubular acidosis also form stones, and these stones are typically calcium phosphate stones. One of the more common metabolic disturbances is seen in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which ultimately results in the excretion of lots of calcium and oxalate in the urine, and these patients often present with calcium oxalate stones. There are also anatomical abnormalities which give rise to stone disease. For example, developmental abnormalities of the kidney, like horseshoe kidney. Uh, there are also patients with pelvic junction obstruction, so-called PJ obstruction, all of which results in urinary stasis and stone formation. Another important underlying cause of stone formation is recurrent UTIs, particularly if the organisms responsible include those such as Proteus mirabilis. Proteus is one of the less common causes of UTI, but it is really interesting because it produces this enzyme called urease, which splits urea, obviously found in abundance in the urine, 
and one of the products is ammonia, which then forms salts with magnesium, phosphate, and calcium, giving rise to so-called triple phosphate or magnesium, calcium, ammonium, phosphate stones. Um, these stones can grow very rapidly and these patients may present with huge stones filling the whole pelvic calicele system of the kidney, which are known as staghorn stones. And if you've ever seen an x-ray of one, you'll know exactly why that is. So yes, there are some important underlying causes of stones, which you've got to think about when you see a patient with stones, particularly a patient with the recurrent stones. But remember, the vast majority will not have a clear-cut uh, underlying abnormality. Misconception number four. Stones always need treatment. Quite understandably, when a patient comes to see us with stones, they assume that that stone is going to cause them some degree of trouble and are quite keen to have their stone treated. However, we know that quite a few stones, particularly small ones, may sit in the kidney remaining asymptomatic for quite a long time, if not forever. And it's difficult to know what the natural history of any given stone is going to be. Therefore, we take a very pragmatic approach. If the patient appears to be having symptoms from their stone, then we would, of course, treat it. So this would include anyone with renal colic, obviously, as well as patients with hematuria and recurrent UTIs where we think the stone might be responsible. Another group of patients that we always tend to treat are patients with stones greater than five millimeters in size who are otherwise fit and healthy. The reason for this is because if the stone's bigger than five millimeters, there is a decreasing chance that if it did pop out of the kidney that it would pass spontaneously. Therefore, we would preemptively treat these stones before they had the opportunity to dislodge and cause trouble. We don't really know how many of these stones would cause trouble if left alone. There have been some studies and one estimate is that roughly 40% of patients with a non-obstructive asymptomatic renal stone will get some form of trouble within five years, which I think is a fair proportion. So these are the types of stones that we would treat. But remember, there are plenty of patients with really small two or three millimeter stones, which you've already said probably aren't responsible for any symptoms. And these patients are quite often best managed just by surveillance. So we know that when the stones are smaller than five millimeters, even if it drops into the ureter, there's a very high chance that the patient will pass it without any medical intervention. We try and minimize radiation exposure. So if the patient's body habitus permits it, we can use ultrasound to keep these stones under surveillance. Now, obviously, if the stones become symptomatic or they start growing, then these would be triggers for treatment. Misconception number five is that in patients with calcium stones, which is basically most of them, as we've said, restricting dietary calcium is a good thing. Now, this is very, very old fashioned advice, but I would say is at least 20 years out of date. By restricting dietary calcium, all you do is you encourage uh, dissolution of bony calcium stores. And obviously, if that goes on for a long time, the patient might become osteopenic. Um, therefore, by restricting dietary calcium, you won't really drop your blood level of calcium or your urinary level of calcium. The other problem is that if you have less dietary calcium in your gut, then there's more free oxalate, and free oxalate is much more avidly absorbed into the blood than calcium oxalate. So rather counterintuitively, perhaps, we advise patients to maintain a normal to slightly high calcium intake. 
there is some evidence that patients on very high dose calcium and vitamin D supplement might be at slightly increased risk of stone formation, but the risks of this are massively outweighed by the benefit of being on the supplements as far as bone health goes. So in general terms, please, please, please don't tell your calcium stone forming patients to restrict dietary calcium. What they should do, and this applies to all stone formers, is to number one, increase their fluid intake. And as a rough guide, they should drink enough during the day. So when they void urine, it looks like water. Typically, that is at least two liters a day, and it may be a lot more, particularly if the patient's very active or lives in a, in a hot climate. The second thing that we do is ask them to restrict dietary salt intake because high dietary salt intake results also in high calcium urinary excretion. The third thing we ask our patients to do is restrict their dietary animal protein intake, and that includes all forms of animal protein, not just red meat. They can substitute that with plant-based protein sources, which tend not to be risk factors for acidic urine and stone formation. So there we have it five commonly held myths and misconceptions about stones. I hope you found that useful. There are plenty more myths out there which we'll try and bust in another episode. Next week I'll undoubtedly be handing you back to a physician to do episode 7 of Memcast, but forgive the intrusion from a surgeon. I hope you found that interesting and useful. And have a really wonderful Christmas if you celebrate that, and all the best for 2020.